Y'all can be seated. Church family, it is it's good to be with you this morning. Um, it's, it's especially good to be with you on this particular Sunday morning. Uh, June is a hard month for our family. Um, it's a month that we don't particularly love because it's a month that's marked our family by grief several times over. Um, yesterday was June 10th, and in 2018, on June 10th, our firstborn son was born. Um, he lived for a day. So yesterday, we remembered and celebrated his birth. Today, we remember and mourn his death. That was in 2018, in June. The following June, June 2019, uh, I was away at youth camp with the youth, and while we were there, uh, my grandmother, my Mimi, died. Uh, she was a woman unlike any I have ever known, unlike any I expect to ever meet again. She had polio when she was young, and she was a lady who loved well, loved hard, and served big. Uh, we named our daughter's middle name after her. Her middle name is Joy. Well, two years later, in June, um, June of 21, on June 10th, again, yesterday, I received a call from my uncle saying that my dad was missing. A couple days later, uh, my father-in-law and me drove off to New Mexico to see if we could find him. Um, and on June 14th, we did. Um, and our worst fears were confirmed as we found my dad in the woods. And so June has been a rough month for the Hebesons. It's a month when we kind of hold our breath. And so in this season, it is, it's really good to be among you. Um, you will know this if you've lived any time at all. Sometimes grief comes in waves, right, in your personal life. It's not like a, a dripping faucet, not slow and steady, but it tends to come in big bunches. Sometimes it feels like the heavens above are almost just kind of bending down, throwing everything that can be thrown at you, and it's in those moments that you realize, I actually can't hold up. If grief were to come and troubles were to come slowly in a trickle-like fashion, we might deceive ourselves and think, we've got this. But when grief comes at once, you realize you don't. And churches are a lot like individuals. This is part of why I bring all of this up. Pain, grief, hurt in churches also doesn't come in a slow, steady trickle. It tends to come in big waves. And I feel right now in the life of, of our church is one of those times when it just seems like almost every family has some really severe, heavy grief on them. There's a lot of aching and a lot of hurting among us collectively right now. And so this doesn't really have anything at least directly to do with Romans 7, where we will be, but I want to offer a word of encouragement um, to us before we get to Romans 7. You and I, those of us who have joined our, ourselves to Jesus, we live in two places at the same time, right? Our feet are firmly rooted on the ground in this age where death comes, where sickness comes, 
where family drama comes, where people we feel like we can trust and lean on, we find that we can't. These are hard days, and we're firmly rooted here. But that is not the only age, even now, that you belong to, because the new age has come crashing in. And 2,000 years ago, death was defeated. Resurrection happened. Resurrection hasn't fully bloomed because we still die and we still bury ones that we love. We await that finalness. But Jesus has been raised from the dead. Death has been defeated. That's a mark of the new age. You sit here right now because of Jesus, forgiven of your sin. That's a mark of the new age. We sit here now filled with the very Spirit of God. That's a mark of the new age. And so, fellow exiles in this pain-crusted age, let me encourage you. Be present among God's people. It's where healing happens. Yes, be physically present, make sacrifices in all other areas of life so that you can be among God's people, but be spiritually present as well. Be here with your whole self. Because week after week, Jesus is found exactly where he promised to be found, with his people. So let me pray for us, and then we will turn over to Romans 7. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you promise and do meet us week after week, day after day, hour after hour. Meet us this morning, we pray. Fill us with your grace. Give us a strange joy that isn't shaken or chased away when times are shaky. Give us a big love that spills out onto those around us. Help us to be a faithful picture of Jesus. To one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 7. Paul asks this question. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. 
Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been found, if it had not been for the law, I would, have, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. In verse 7, Paul asks a question that should be a little bit shocking to us. It's a question that, at least on the surface, seems at best to be an absurd question, and at worst, a blasphemous question. He asks, is the law sin? And trace this out with me. Who gave the law? God gave the law. If the law is sin, then the giver of the law is the giver of sin. And you you see the problem with the question. Um, If we look a little bit deeper, we can see that this question actually rises up uh, naturally from what Paul has said before. But you should know this isn't the only time Paul does this kind of thing. In fact, Asking these shocking questions is one of the patterns that Paul has in the book of Romans. Uh, If you look back in chapter 3, Paul asks the question of if our unfaithfulness can nullify or undo God's faithfulness. It's another shocking question that seems at best absurd and at worst blasphemous. In chapter 6, Paul asks if we should continue in grace, in sin... So that grace can abound. Do we need to live extra bad so that we can help God look good? That's the question Paul asks. And here he asks if the law itself is sin. He continues on with this. In chapter 9, he raises the question, is God unjust? It's a bold question. Paul does this not just because it arises, but I think it also kind of shocks us back awake. In fact, maybe a helpful tool for you as you read through the book of Romans is if you come across Paul's question and it seems like it comes out of the blue, back up a few verses and reread. If you come across Paul's questions and it makes sense, then that's a good pointer to you that you've actually understood what it is Paul has said before, and that's why he then raises this question to cut off this line of thinking before it goes too far. And so um, Paul raises in verses 1 through 6 some questions about the law that then spill over into verse 7. So the plan this morning 
is we'll look at the first six verses to figure out why it is that Paul asks the question that he asks in verse 6. And so we'll look at this morning under two big headings. One in verses 1 through 6 will be the law and the Christian. And the second in verses 7 through 12 will be, is the law sin? So we'll start in verse 1. Here Paul begins to use this analogy of marriage. Paul talks about marriage and adultery as a way of getting at something that is true about the law. And so Paul, Paul gives this example that his readers will know to be true. If a woman and a man are married, and if while they are married, the woman leaves the man and goes to live with another, Paul says she's called an adulteress because she's left her husband and is shacked up with somebody else. But if that same scenario happens, only this time the husband has died, now she's not called an adulteress because marriage lasts only as long as life lasts. Paul says there's something in this that's also true about the law. He says, in Christ, this is what we saw in chapter 6, this picture, in Christ we've died to who we were, we've died to our old life. Paul says we've also then died to the law, and now he says we are then freed to be joined to Another. So in Christ, we die to the law, and we are then free to be joined to another. Only notice that Paul doesn't leave this door open. Right? So in the marriage analogy, if a wife has a husband who dies, she's in this kind of in-between state. She can continue on single, or she could go find someone else to marry. But Paul doesn't say that's how this works in this position. He says, if you've died to the law, the only way that you die to the law and yet remain alive is if you die to the law in Christ. And if you've died to the law in Christ, then you are joined, then, to Christ. To be dead to the law is to be tied to Jesus, to this new spouse, if we want to keep this marriage metaphor running. And we saw this last week, we see it again this week, there are only two options. You either are a slave to sin, or you're a slave to God. It's interesting here, Paul, and this is something to just kind of tuck away as we work our way towards verse 7. Paul talks about being a slave to sin and a slave to law almost as if they are the same thing. To be freed from the law is to be enslaved to God. Now, it's worth noting that those who are enslaved to sin might look wildly different, right? So on one hand, there are those people who are enslaved to sin who look Gentile-ish. They proudly proclaim their freedom. They get drunk, they sleep around, they live it up, and they cast no judgment because there is no wrong, there's only likes and dislikes. On the other hand, there's another group of people who are enslaved to the law, these people tend to be tidy. They look like law keepers. They look like they have it together. They're clean cut, but kind of stiff and rigid. They have big words and tidy theology on who God is and what he expects of humans, and they go to the nth degree to stay in line. We met both of these groups in Romans 1 and in Romans 2. And though both of these groups look like opposites on the outside... In reality, they are the same group, those who are enslaved to sin and therefore produce fruit of death. We see that in verse 5. Paul says, while we were living in the flesh, 
our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members for what? To bear fruit for death. And so these two groups of people look very different, but they're actually enslaved to the same thing. They're both enslaved to sin and they both bring death. It's not difficult, by the way, to map these two groups of people in Paul's day onto people groups in our day. There are those who are stiffly religious and look like they have it all together, but actually are enslaved to sin. And those who look loose and free and like they have a good time, but also who are enslaved to sin. Both of them have the same master and face the same end. So that's one group, is you can be enslaved to sin. The other group is those who are enslaved to God. And these two groups also look wildly different. There's people in this group who appear kind of Gentile-ish, but a, a little bit different. Perhaps they look a little bit rough and ready. Perhaps they have scars from a previous life. This group's not naive. This group knows the ways of the world, but there's a strange gentleness in this group that might catch you off guard. And on the other hand, there's another group of people who are enslaved to God, and they might appear religious-ish, but they're different. They might look tidy, like they have everything pulled together. They might used to be Pharisees. But where there was once stiffness, there's now a bleeding of grace. And both of these two groups, the Gentile-ish and the religious-ish, look a lot alike, or look very different, but in reality, they're the same group. They're a group of people who are enslaved to Jesus. And as Paul says in verse 4, this group of people finally produces fruit to God. Those who have died with Christ, Paul says, have been freed from the law and tied to Jesus. So notice that. To be freed from the law is not to be in no man's land. To be freed from the law is to be tied to Jesus, and being tied to Jesus means a new way of life. Paul says this new way of life finally bears fruit to God. My first vehicle was a small green truck. It was made by Mazda. I don't even know if Mazda makes trucks anymore. Um, it was built in 94. My parents had had it before me. I got it when I turned 16, and I drove it all the way through high school, all the way through college, and finally had to get rid of it shortly before I married Mary um, because there was a lot of problems. Um, this vehicle had had a lot of wear and tear on it. It didn't have an AC that worked, so the AC was the windows down, which worked okay on the highway, but if you stopped at a stoplight, it was a little bit rough on a hot summer day. Or if it was a hot day and it was raining, it was not really a good solution. So the AC didn't work. None of the power inside of the cab worked, like the overhead lights, the dashboard lights. Uh, it had a cassette player, remember those? <laughs> but it had a cassette stuck in it. So there was a Lion King soundtrack stuck in it, but I couldn't listen to Lion King or change it with anything else. It was, it was just there. It also had a leaking radiator, and so I got to carry around a gallon jug of water that I had to make sure was filled at all times and would regularly have to add water to the radiator so that it wouldn't overheat. It was a manual, a stick, and it also had a habit of not staying in gear. And so when you put it into gear, you also had to 
hold it in gear, because if you didn't hold it in gear, it would slip out and fall into neutral. It was a lot of fun to drive. <laughs> and I drove this car through high school, all the way through college, um, and for a good little while after college, until two things happened. The heater went out, and that, in winter, was a little bit of a problem. But the bigger issue was Mary agreed to marry me. <laughs> and going on dates was one thing, but forever and after seemed to ask a bit much. So I got rid of that car, and I, I got a new one, one that worked. It had AC that blew nice and cold. Um, it had power windows. It had a working radio. I didn't have to carry water around. Right? It was nice. But there would have been something strange if after getting the new car, I continued to carry around a jug of water and every day or so poured water into the radiator. It would have been strange if after getting the new car, I took Mary on a date and rolled the windows down, turned the AC off while we sat at stoplight after stoplight after stoplight so that we showed up sweaty and steamy. Right? There would have been something strange about continuing to live as if I was in the old way after I was in the new way. Paul says there's something similar going on here. You were under the law, he said in, in chapter 6, verse 14, that sin had dominion over you. But now you're not under the law, but you're under grace. Paul says there's something utterly ridiculous and silly about continuing to live as if the old is still true when it's not. You, Paul says, are no longer under the law, but under grace. And that means now, instead of bearing fruit to death, you bear fruit, Paul says in verse 4, to God. Sometimes I think we, out of a fear of slipping into kind of a works-based salvation, we downplay the theme of obedience in Romans. But over and over and over, I want you to notice something. Paul isn't simply concerned about how we get to be forgiven. Yes, Paul is absolutely concerned with how we are forgiven. But he's also concerned with us being able to do what Adam and Israel never were able to do. He's concerned not, with, not just with us being saved by faith, but with us also living faithfully. So hear me carefully. Two things can be true at the same time. We sometimes struggle to hold this together. You are not saved by what you do. You are saved, Paul says, by grace through faith. And, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, you are saved for good works. And so Paul says here, in verse 4, that we now finally are able to bear fruit for God. In verse 6, he says, we now live in the new way of the Spirit. And these aren't just one-offs in Romans. So get your fingers ready. We'll run around a little bit in Romans, and I want to show you something. So we'll start on the bookends of Romans, on the both outer edges of it, and quickly work our way through. I just want to show you a thread that runs throughout that I think sometimes we miss. So flip over to Romans 1. We don't have these on the screen, so you'll have to actually use your old-fashioned Bible. Romans 1, verse 5, 
Paul says that we've received grace and apostleship. Why? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So right out of the gate, Paul says one of the things that this faith does is it brings about obedience to Jesus among all of the nations. So that's on one end of Romans. If you flip over to the other end of Romans, go to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, verse 18. Paul says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to do what? To bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. What does this gospel message do? It brings about, Paul says, obedience. Or look at 1626. Very end of the letter, Paul says that God has now disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations according to the commandment of the eternal God to bring about what? The obedience of faith. So on the outer, outer edges of Romans, obedience is front and center there that comes through faith. We'll move in a little bit closer. So back to the front of Romans. Romans chapter 2. Paul talks about this strange group. Something that sounds like it almost can't be true at a first read. Verse 26, chapter 2, Paul says, So if a man who is uncircumcised, which, by the way, if you're uncircumcised, that means you're not keeping the law. The law says be circumcised. But Paul says, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Paul says there's an obedience that comes through here that doesn't come about by keeping the law but results in actually keeping the precepts of the law. Or flip over to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 verse 2, Paul says... Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul says there's an obedience that comes about through all of this. And this is woven all the way through Romans until it reaches its high point in Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 4. Paul says that sin was condemned... In the flesh, why? Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in who? Us. There is something about the work of God through Jesus by grace that results not just in forgiveness of sins, but in obedience of his people. That shows up here in 7, and I just want you to notice this is a thread that doesn't just have a happy circumstance where it shows up in seven, but is woven all through the book of Romans. Sometimes we divide up uh, some of Paul's letters, I think, too neatly. So we think about Romans 1 to 11 as theology, and we think about Romans 12 to 17 as application. There's some truth there, but notice there's application and calls for obedience woven all through this letter. And so, quick summary of what Paul says in the first 
six verses of chapter 7, Paul says, if we've died in Christ, which that's what baptism pictures, then we have died to the law. And strangely enough, this death actually allows us to live. And this new life is truly life because for the first time, you and I, by the power of the Spirit, finally find ourselves producing fruit to God. Now, all of that then raises an interesting question. Does that then mean the law is sin? If dying to the law is a prerequisite to bearing fruit to God, does that mean that the law itself is sin? Well, you know the answer. The answer has to be no. Paul says as much. In verse 7, he says, by no means. In verse 12, he says, far from that, the law is actually holy. The commandment is holy, and it's righteous, and it's good. It'd be hard for Paul to say something more positive. So the question then is, how can it be both true that in order for us to bear fruit to God, we have to die to the law and the law be good? How is it that the law is not sin? We, we tend to measure things by the things that they produce. So we say poison is bad because it produces death. And we say that mint chocolate chip ice cream is good because it produces joy. Right? Amen. Yeah. Best thing that's been said so far. We measure things by the, way, by the things that they produce. But Paul says not quite so fast. There's actually a few things that the law does. So he says first that the law names sin. So look at verse 7. Paul says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So the law sees something and says that is sin. Paul says, if the law hadn't told me that that is sin, I wouldn't have been able to tell. Some of you may remember when um, they used to, back before you could play on your phone at breakfast, um, they had these neat little glasses sometimes in boxes of cereal that had these little red lenses, and you could pull them out and put them on, and they used to have all these games on the back of cereal boxes. And sometimes you could see things on the box because of the red glasses that you couldn't see before you had them. They kind of decoded stuff. Paul says the law is kind of like that. It helps us see our life as it actually is, and now all of a sudden we see things that we've been doing the whole time that we didn't realize were sin, and Paul says the law names it as sin, and now we know it to be sin. But he says that's not the only thing that the law does. The law also inflames sin. So look at verse 8. Paul says that sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, the commandment, the example he gave in verse 7 was not to covet, not to desire things that belong to somebody else. He says, when that commandment showed up, it produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Parents, grandparents, teachers, you know this to be true. As soon as you tell somebody, don't do this, what do they want to do? That. So Paul says... The law names sin. Paul says it also inflames sin. When we're told not to covet, we all of a sudden start looking around and seeing things that other people have and thinking, I wish I had that. 
or other people's life look easier. You think, I wish I had that life or those things. The, the law names a sin, we find that it's sin, and then we find it inflamed in us. And then the last thing Paul says that the law does is it kills sin. Verse 11, Paul says, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So I want you to imagine that you had a wrench that belonged to your great-grandpa. And you want this little family heirloom to live on. The only problem is it's covered in rust. So you take some phosphoric acid, you pour it on there, turns black, you scrub off all the black thing to get rid of the rust, and you find out underneath that there's more rust. And so you do it again. You scrub all that off, more rust. Now imagine you just keep doing that, keep doing that, keep doing that, and in the end there is nothing left in your hand because the whole thing was rusted through and through. That's a bit like us. See, the law shows up and it names sin, it inflames sin, and it kills sin. But what happens if you and I, through and through, are filled with sin? What does the law lead to? Inevitably, the law leads to death. Because it's the only thing that it can do. Does that make the law bad? No. But it does make it dangerous. It doesn't offer hope. It doesn't bring forgiveness or salvation. It shows us who we actually are. And so I think a fitting place for us to end is a couple things. You um, who are here, who know Jesus and love Jesus, perhaps a reminder to be thankful for Jesus is in order. It's in Christ that we die to the law. And it's in that death that we truly and finally have life. To those of you here who don't know Jesus, Maybe you find yourself weary. Maybe you're weary of trying to do good. Maybe trying to please God. And you find that you continually fail. You're religious. Maybe you see uh, yourself for who you are. You see some brokenness in you that you don't like. You see weakness. And you like to... Try to build your self-esteem, but the more that you learn about yourself, the more that you find you don't like yourself and that there's some hopelessness there. Maybe you have a secular outlook. But let me pass along Jesus' invitation to you. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, Jesus says, for I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Pray with me.
Jesus, we thank you that through death, we can have life. Thank you that you died in our place, that we might be forgiven. Thank you for giving us your very spirit, that we might follow, and that we might obey. Teach us, help us this morning and every morning to cling tightly to you, for you are indeed the Lord of life. And the only path to life is in you. And so guard us from looking for hope or for looking for life in any other well. Let us cling tightly to you and drink deeply from your word that we might be satisfied and find rest. We pray this in your name.